Um, we're going to be looking for the next two weeks at um, the Lord's Prayer. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you, if you need a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, if you just raise your hand, we've got some in the back and we have some of our ushers who'd be happy to, to, to bring one of those to you. So as we start, I have a question that I want you to think about. If, if there was one skill that you wanted to learn, one skill, one ability, something like that, and you could choose any expert in the world to teach you about that skill, to teach you how to do that effectively or to get better at it, who would you choose? I mean, what skill would it be and who would you choose? I asked my family that um, last night. And my, my son, my oldest son who's not here, Alec, um, he's, he has two things that he loves in his life. He loves to play guitar. He usually plays electric guitar with our uh, worship team. So he said, first thing out of his mouth was, well, it'd be to play the electric guitar, and the guy he would choose would be the Edge, who's the lead, player, lead guitar player for uh, the group U2. But he's also a pitcher. And so he said, well, and the other one would be, um, if you know who Jamie Moyer is, a pitcher for the Mariners years ago. And one of the things that you know, made Jamie Moyer great was he didn't have great arm speed. I think his, by the end of his career, his fastball probably topped out like 70, 80 miles an hour. I mean, Alec plays against kids in college right now who throw faster than that. But, you know, he, Alec identifies with that because he's not a power pitcher. He does with a lot of finesse in that. And so he's like, I would love to learn from a guy like that, you know, how to take advantage and set people up. Um, my wife, I, I asked Malia about that. And I mean, she had a few things. She, she'd love to have somebody teach her how to paint better, but she couldn't really think of a living painter that she could, could call on for that. But the other thing was like cooking. And she's like, well, I guess Rachel Ray, but I could just watch her show every day. So I don't really need that. Um, um, oh, and the other one was writing. She loves to write. And she was, and, but the writers she thought of were, were both dead as well. Um, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, so... You have to invent something to bring people back to, to make that work. I'm sorry. And then my, uh, my two youngest, Zach and, and Emma, they've really enjoyed lately. They've been making a lot of movies. With Emma um, bought herself a video camera a little while ago, and so they like to write their scripts and, and make movies. And so they were thinking that would be cool to get, like, you know, J.J. Abrams, you know, the guy who directed the, the last Star Wars movies, to get him to teach us, you know, how to do that better. Well, in, in my life, I actually had that opportunity afforded to me once. When I was in a seminary, um, I, I got a position working as an assistant director or a director of a junior high ministry at a small church down in the Los Angeles area. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to work under a guy named Alan Hadidian. Probably none of you have ever heard of Alan Hadidian, but you've probably heard of someone who considered him an expert in the field of discipleship. Um, before Alan pastored the church where I worked under him, he'd had the opportunity to lead the college group of John MacArthur's church um, down in Southern California. And John MacArthur, you know, if you haven't heard of him, back in like the, the 80s, early 90s, that he was one of the biggest, you know, pastors that there was. I mean, there was, he's got, if you Google him, he's got countless books that he's written on different subjects. And at one time, back when Alan was working under him, the publishing company that John MacArthur worked, worked with that published all of his books, they called John up and they said, we would love for you to write a book for us on discipleship. And, and, and John MacArthur says, you know, I'm not the guy to write that book. 
But the guy that should write it for you is my college pastor, Alan Hadidian. And this is one of the two books that he's written on, on discipleship. And so I mean, John MacArthur considered him an expert in the area of discipleship and discipling other people. And I had the chance for a year and a half when I was in seminary to work under Alan and to be discipled by him and to be taught by him about what it means to, to make disciples. And it was really a, a great opportunity. And this morning, we're going to look at another group of guys who had that opportunity to ask someone who was the foremost expert, probably, on the topic of prayer and to talk to them about what that meant to pray. So Matthew chapter 6 um, is, is where we're going to be looking at. And it doesn't say anything about it in there, but if you, go, if you were to go over to the next, um, next slide, Luke chapter 11 Jesus presents the same prayer we're going to be looking at here that we talk about as the Lord's Prayer. And when Jesus presents the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, it's in response to this question from the disciples. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Do you realize that is the only place in the Gospels where we ever have recorded that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them anything. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to preach. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to perform miracles or teach us how to cast out demons. You know, teach us how to make disciples. They didn't ask him to teach them any of those things. The one thing the disciples asked Jesus to teach them was, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think it's because as you read through the Gospels, you realize... Prayer was such a major part of Jesus' life. There's continually times that we see where Jesus went off by himself to pray. Every time he had a major decision coming up or something important that was going to happen at the beginning of his ministry, before he chose his 12 disciples, the night before he was going to die, Jesus spent extended periods of time in prayer. And the disciples saw that and they saw the intimacy that Jesus had with his father in prayer. And they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so the, the same model that he uses in Luke 11 is what he gives us here in, in Matthew um, chapter 6, where we're going to be looking this morning. So as we get ready to look at the Lord's prayer this morning, let's begin by coming before him in prayer and just asking him to bless our time. Father, thank you for the model that we have in Jesus Christ of what the true intimacy with you in prayer looks like. And this morning, as we begin to look at the model he gave the disciples for how they were to pray, God, I ask that you would help us to look at our own prayer lives and be able to take these things and approach prayer the way that you would have us to. That we would learn from those things. God, I pray that your spirit would speak to each heart that's here. That you would teach us. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus gives us this model, this pattern for prayer in, in Matthew chapter 6. And, and the first thing I want to remind us is this is not just some um, mantra, some you know, prayer that is just given to us that we just continually 
were to repeat over and over and over. Because look back at what Jim talked about last week in verses um, 7 and 8. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. So Jesus is saying, this is not just some form to repeat over and over and over again. Every time you pray, don't just come and say the Lord's Prayer. Rather, Jesus is giving us a model to follow when we pray. It's almost an outline for how we structure our prayers. And, And the outline looks like this. It begins with the idea of worship. We begin our prayers with worshiping God, with recognizing Him for who He is. And approaching Him that way. And then as we worship God, then we begin to submit ourselves to Him. Because when we realize how great God is, we understand that our place is simply to submit to Him. And then the third part is dependence upon Him. As we submit to God, we acknowledge that we are dependent upon Him for our needs. And then in dependence, we come and we confess our sins to Him. And finally, prayers of deliverance. Those are the five things that Jesus hits as he goes through the Lord's Prayer. And he starts with where all of our prayer should start. He starts by putting God first. You know, he begins with your name, your kingdom. I mean, look, look at the prayer. Let's go ahead and read that. Um, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus starts by putting God first. He says, your name, your kingdom, your will. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at just those first two points, the ideas of worship and submission, starting with God's name, who he is, and then looking into his kingdom and his will being done here on earth. And then he comes to our own needs. Those take second place to our submission to God and our worship of God, because we need to be people who are completely committed to him. And that's the second part of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from evil. So this morning it starts with God, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. It begins with that idea of worship. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he he teaches them and he teaches us that prayer begins with worship of the Father. The purpose of prayer, the purpose of everything that we do, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, is to give glory to God. Glorify God in everything that we do. And so when we come to prayer, that's part of that. Prayer has to begin with that in mind, that our primary reason for coming to God in prayer, our primary reason for existence, for everything we do, is to honor and to glorify God so that others might see Him through us. And so Jesus begins His prayers as we come to God in worship. He begins it with an interesting tension. He says, Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be your name. So I want to look at each part of that phrase together. Because it begins with our Father. It begins with our coming to God as children. It begins with 
the intimate relationship that we are called into through Jesus Christ with God. The closest that we have. The word that Jesus uses there, our Father, it's the word Abba. It would be, in in the Aramaic language, the first word generally that that a child would speak. It's like the the equivalent of what, you know, when when a child today says, you know, Dada or Papa, Abba. It's that closeness, that intimacy, that love, that caring, that, that, that dependence. It's a term of great intimacy and affection. It's the kind of love and closeness that should be there when we come to God. Um, go to the next slide. This is, this is a picture. You know, when I think of that word Abba, this is a picture of me and my dad when I was probably, you know, two, three years old. And there was a trip that we took down, I'm pretty sure. Um, this is kind of overlooking San Francisco, if I remember correctly. But I mean, it's just, this is one of my favorite pictures of my dad, because it's just him there holding me in his arms. I'm sitting on his lap and just, just clinging to him. And when I think of that word, Abba, you know, that's the kind of, of image or picture that I have of us just crawling into God's lap and having that kind of loving, intimate, close relationship that we want. And, and I know in, in our world today, I know that there are some of you here, I'm sure, who haven't had that kind of a relationship with your father. You know, for, for some of you, maybe you had a father who was absent, a father who left. Some of you had a father who may have been abusive, you know, and, and, and other kinds of, of dysfunction. We, we live in a fallen world. You know, I'm, I'm a dad, and I know that I'm far from a perfect father to my children. We all are. But the beautiful thing is, no matter what your relationship with your father was like, God wants to be the perfect father to you that you may have never had. Because God promised in Psalm 68, verse 5, God promised that he is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So I want you to know that no matter what your relationship with your earthly father may have been or may be like now, don't let this idea of coming to God as your father be a stumbling block or be something that would keep you from him this morning. Because God wants to be that perfect father. Everything you have ever wanted from your father and more in terms of love and intimacy and closeness and and caring, God has that for you today. Perfectly. He is able to be the perfect father that you may have never had. So so hold that. that. That's part of it. God is our father in heaven. So hold that over here and think about that. But then the other side of the tension is this. Because the second half of that phrase that Jesus gives us to start is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we have the closeness, the intimacy, the love. But he is also to be someone who is hallowed, who is to be reverenced. That's what the idea of hallowed is. It's somebody who is held in reverence, who is regarded or treated as, as holy. It means to honor and to glorify Him. 
and to exalt him above all else. That that idea of holding up God's name as holy and by extension, extension holding up God as holy, that is something that was so important that God made that whole idea the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. If you look back in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the first three of the Ten Commandments all point to that. It's, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any carved images or any graven images. There's not to be any idols that you pray to. Pray only to me. And, and the third command is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God says, do not misuse my name. I am to be so holy and set apart that nothing is to interfere with that. And for the Jewish people, they were so afraid of violating those commands, they didn't even want to come close to anything that would possibly take the, the name of God in vain or you know, having any graven images or putting anything before God that over the centuries they developed a tradition where they got to the point where they would not even use the name of God or even, even want to write it. They had a, very, a real reluctance to do that. Because they grasped, they, began, they, they had an idea of the greatness, the majesty, the wonder of God and, and of who He was. And I think sometimes for us, Today, it, it, it can be easy to lose that sense of awe and that sense of wonder of, of who God is. We, um, when we come to God, there should be a sense of, of, of amazement at the, the, the power and the might and the majesty. And sometimes we lose that. And so I'm going to try something this morning to try and just give you, hopefully, in maybe a small way, a renewed sense of, of how amazing and awesome and powerful God is. And I want to do it by helping us try to grasp the size of the universe we live in and the fact that God cares about us. So we're going to go through these next few slides here. This is, and, and, and think about it this way. One of the major things in the news this week was what? We sent a probe that went into orbit around the planet Jupiter, okay? The biggest planet in our, our solar system is Jupiter. So that's Jupiter there, clear, clear on the right. Earth is the fourth planet in. So, I mean, you compare. We're, we're just little people on Earth. And compare Earth to the size of Jupiter. Okay? I, that gives, makes us all feel pretty small, right? Just wait till you see this. Go to the next slide. Because this is going to compare that tiny dot on the left there. That's Jupiter. The little bulb next to it that's the sun. Okay, that's our sun is that tiny ball next to the little dot, which is Jupiter. Then we keep going to one of the, you know, and this, trust me, this isn't even the biggest one. This is a big star, but not the biggest. This is a star called Pollux. Compare Pollux, which is huge. That's our little sun there. Jupiter's there. I mean, at this point, Earth wouldn't even show up as like one pixel on this slide. Okay, go to the next one. Because Pollux now, the little tiny ball there about the size of a baseball, that's Pollux. Remember how small Pollux made our sun look? Well, keep going to Rigel is the big blue star there. Because we're talking about stars there. All the planets are all tiny at this point. But we got one more slide to go through. Because Rigel, 
now becomes the tiny ball. We go to V.Y. Canis Majoris, which to give you a sense of the size of how big, and I did some research this week. V.Y. Canis Majoris, they used to think it was the biggest star. Now there's at least three or four that they know of that are even bigger than this. But to give you an idea, compared to just what we know, okay? I mean, our Earth, compared to the sun, is just like a tiny dot to a big ball. Well, our sun, the radius of Canis Majoris, so one side to the other, you could put 1,410 of our suns across. That's the radius of Canis Majoris. So, I mean, just think of how many millions of our suns it would take to equal the size of one of the largest stars that we know. And yet, what does the Bible say about God and the universe? He created all of this. He holds all of this in his hands. He put it all in motion. That is the God that we worship. The God who is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of things that are so massive, we can hardly imagine and grasp that. That is the God that loves you and cares for you and sent His Son to this earth to die for you. If that doesn't begin to fill you with a sense of awe and wonder and worship at the power that our God has, I don't know. So, And that's what we need to do when we come to God, when we come to worship Him, we need to hold these two things in balance. We need to understand that God is our Abba, our Father. We can have a closeness and an intimacy with Him, but He is also the almighty, all-powerful Creator of the universe. Everything as huge and as massive as that is. So we can enjoy that intimacy and that closeness but we also have to have a sense of awe and a sense of wonder and honor Him and be committed to honoring and glorifying and exalting Him in all we do. And that balance between those two can be tough to find. Because at different times in our lives, depending on our backgrounds, we can go to one extreme or the other. I mean, if we err too much on the side of thinking just of God as our Father, you know, we, we could begin to think of God as just our buddy and, and, and our friend, someone we can just hang out with and we want to have a good time. You know, and we lose sight of that He is a God of power and justice and holiness and perfection. You know, and, or, you know, we can err too much on the side of being reverent, you know, and, and begin to think of God as this, this being who is, who is aloof, who is, is detached. And our relationship with God can begin to become very, very sterile. We can start to miss out on experiencing God's love and His care for us on a daily basis. You know, I mean, so we, we can go to, to one extreme and it's almost like, you know, we think of God as a dad who's more worried about being the friend to his kids 
than he is with being their dad. And it's a relationship where there's no, no respect. A relationship where the kids don't listen to, to, to the father and they won't obey and they won't honor. And we can fall into that trap if we are too much on the side of thinking of God just as our father, as our buddy. Or we can go to the other side and we end up thinking of God as, as a dad that is, is strict and that needs to be, be, be feared and who's just a disciplinarian and never lets his kids crawl up into his lap or doesn't get down on the floor and, and wrestle with them. We need both. When Jesus gives us this phrase, it's not by accident because God is both our Abba, Father, and He is holy and almighty and all-powerful. We need both intention and in balance when we come to God because that's who He is. He is our Abba Father and He is the almighty, holy creator of the universe. And He loves you and He wants you to talk to Him. But it has to begin, that conversation has to begin in the right spot with coming to Him in worship. In relationship. So we come to God. We begin when we pray. We should begin with coming to God in worship and acknowledging Him for who He is. And as we worship God, we acknowledge Him for who He is, we recognize then that our position in relationship to Him, both as our Father and as our Creator, is a relationship of submission. And that's the next phrase that Jesus has in the Lord's Prayer. As our Father in heart in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about here, first step is we have to understand what does he mean. We talked about your kingdom. What is God's kingdom? Your kingdom come. So when we define the kingdom of God, I think one of the traps we have to avoid is sometimes we want to think about the kingdom of God as something in the future, something that is simply going to come, you know, at some specific point in the future. But I want you to understand this morning that when Jesus is talking about God's kingdom, he is not simply talking about a specific time and place in history, in the future that we look ahead to. Because God's kingdom is not limited to a specific time and place. But rather, here's the definition I want you to understand. God's kingdom is seen anywhere and any time that people and or angels submit themselves to live under the authority and lordship of God. God's kingdom is seen anywhere and any time that people and or angels submit themselves to live under the authority and lordship of God. So right now, there is the complete and full manifestation of God's kingdom in heaven where His angels have completely submitted themselves to live under His authority and His lordship as God. And that's why when Jesus prays, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, God's kingdom is in heaven perfectly and fully right now, but is not yet that way here on earth. But the fact is that Jesus came to bring God's kingdom to earth. In fact, if you were to study the book of Matthew, you would find that the theme that runs as a thread throughout the entire book is this whole idea of Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven that is coming. 
It begins with when John the Baptist came. What was John the Baptist's message? When he came, his message to the children of Israel was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus came and he was baptized, and Matthew tells us that he began to proclaim the same message that John did. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he began to teach over and over and over again about what the kingdom of heaven was. And he he taught parable after parable after parable to begin to illustrate to his disciples what this idea of the kingdom of heaven was. And for the disciples and the Jewish people, when Jesus started talking about the kingdom, they would have thought back to the Old Testament teachings about the kingdom that was going to come and the kingdom the Messiah was going to establish and what that would mean. And when the Jewish people thought about the kingdom of God, here's some of the things that the Jewish people thought about. The the Jewish people thought about in the kingdom of God, when it came here on earth, it would be a place where justice would prevail. There'd be no disease, no hunger, no oppression, no no death, no pain, no sadness. There's going to be peace forever. And it's a place where God will one day rule. That's what the kingdom of heaven on earth looks like. Because the kingdom of heaven on earth comes when God rules in, in men's hearts and the world is finally as it should be. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. And, you know, think about this. When Jesus was here on earth, what did he do? Everywhere he went, he worked to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. When Jesus encountered death, what did he do? He raised the dead. When Jesus encountered pain and sickness and disease, what did he do? He healed people. When Jesus encountered oppression and injustice and sadness, what did he do? He reached out and he cared and he comforted. And he stood up for those who were oppressed. When he saw the oppressors in the temple, he cast them out. Jesus, everywhere he went, his goal was to the, at least the area that he was, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And here's what I think is the cool part about all this. You know what our calling is as followers of Christ? If you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, and if you are now a part of God's kingdom, Because what is the kingdom of God? It's when men and or angels commit themselves to follow God. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have committed yourself to follow Him, guess what? You are now a part of that kingdom of God. And as the church, you know what part of our calling as the church is? It's in whatever small ways that we can today to bring just a little piece of that kingdom of heaven to earth. When we encounter injustice and oppression and sickness and and death and pain, in whatever small ways that we can, we are to approach that. Maybe we can't heal the sick and raise the dead. But we can comfort those who are sick. We can mourn with those who mourn. We can weep with those who weep. We can stand up and we can fight oppression and injustice. 
when we see things that are wrong in the world around us, our calling as part of the kingdom of God is to do what we can to try to make it right. So our prayer as we come to God is to be a prayer of submission to Him. A prayer of submission to His rule and to His authority in our lives. And when we come to Christ, we become part of His kingdom as we submit ourselves to Him. And now, it's our calling as followers of Christ to bring that kingdom to earth. And yeah, none of us as followers of Christ, we're not going to bring that full manifestation of the kingdom. That will only obviously come at the end of time when Christ returns and He establishes His kingdom on earth. But we can bring a bit, a glimpse, a small part of that to the earth today. You know, and I guess this part of this is especially applicable this week. You know, because if we look around at our world, you know, we know that things are a mess. And it, it hurts us, and we hate it. The, the, the sin and the, the oppression, sickness, death, the injustice, all those things that are going on. And you know why those things hurt so much and why we hate those things so much? Because we know that's not how this earth was ever supposed to be. When God created the world, He created it perfectly. There was no sickness, no disease, no death, no oppression. There was nobody that was hungry. Nobody that was homeless. Nobody that was in poverty. Everyone. Adam and Eve had everything that they needed in the garden. Until what happened? Until sin came. And now we live in a fallen world that is wrecked and broken by sin. And our hearts ache because this is not the world we were created to live in. God created us to live in that perfect world with none of these things. And it's our calling to stand up for those things. And that's why our hearts ache so much when we hear stories about what happened this week in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis and Dallas. That's why it breaks our hearts. Because those things aren't the way the world's supposed to be. So what can we do to make it right? And that's why Jesus says that, that that part of our prayers should always be to pray that today we will live as part of His kingdom. To pray that today God's will is going to be done in us and through us as we try and strive to remain faithful to God's will for our lives. As we daily live in submission to Him and to His rule and to His authority and His lordship in our lives. So we pray for today that we live in submission and that we try and bring a little bit of that kingdom down here. But we also pray for that future, for that coming day when we see the physical kingdom of God established here on earth. And it's then and only then that we will fully see that God's will 
has been done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's God's calling to us. And that's where we're going to stop for this morning. Because the next week we're going to look at the last three parts of that prayer. The, the part that deals with us, our, our dependence and our confession and, and our deliverance. Because those things all flow out of our submission to Him. And I want to challenge you, next week when you come, it, we're going to end it a little bit differently. So come ready to not just hear about prayer, because it feels funny to me to preach a message about prayer and then not end it with praying. So that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to have things set up a little bit differently. We're going to have some prayer stations um, set up here around the auditorium. And when we get to the end of the message, we're going to have a little bit of an extended time of worship where you are going to be asked to get up out of your seat and go and pray and practice some of the different aspects of the Lord's Prayer that we've talked about. That's what we want to do um, next week. So come ready to pray. But this morning, as we conclude, a couple things to, to, to think about. Number one, if you are already a follower of Christ, what can you do this week to bring a little bit of the kingdom of heaven here to earth today? Where is it in your life that you're seeing the pain, oppression, injustice, sickness, disease, whatever it is? What can you do to show those people who are hurting and suffering a little bit of the love of God? How can we do that? And how can we live in submission to Him and live out those values? Secondly, there's probably some of you here this morning that maybe you've never taken that step. Maybe you've never thought about God as your Father. And also being the creator of the universe. And that that God wants to have a relationship with you. It's not just some abstract being out there. But he is truly a personal God who wants to know you. And maybe this morning you need to take that step. To enter into that relationship with him. You need to understand and think about Jesus Christ. And how God because of what we talked about earlier, how sin came into the world and that relationship that we were created for was broken. God sent Jesus to this earth, not just to teach us things like how to pray, but to come and to live a perfect, sinless life so He could give His life as a sacrifice. To pay the penalty that you and I should have paid. The penalty for our sin, which is death, is what we deserve. And Jesus, who lived the perfect life, died, gave his life on the cross for you so that you could know him. And if you've never done that this morning, I would encourage you to take that step. Let's pray. Father God, it's hard sometimes to, to look around at the world that we live in and see the hurt and the pain, and the brokenness, and the injustice, the so many things that go wrong, and we look around, and sometimes we just wonder where it all went wrong, and then we just have to think back to the garden, and we know where it all went wrong. We look at our own lives, 
And we know that we are hurting, sinful people apart from you. But God, you are the one who created all that we see. You are the one who loves us like a father, even in better and greater ways than our own fathers ever could. And because of that love that you have for us, you sent your son to be our savior. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have that relationship with you, that this morning your spirit would work in their heart, that they might understand their need for you, that they might say this morning, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need you. Jesus, I accept your sacrifice for myself. I acknowledge that you are my Lord. I need you as my Savior. They might make that commitment this morning, but they might begin today to put their faith and their hope and their trust in you. For those of us that have already taken that step, God, we're still people who struggle daily with sin. We're called to live in submission to you, but so often, God, you know that we don't. You know that we go our own way, that we all have our sins that we struggle with. God, this morning I pray as we sing these last couple songs that we would take the time to renew that commitment, to submit our lives to you, understanding that you are the one that deserves our total devotion and commitment. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are the one that we love, the one that we worship. Open our eyes, God, this week that we might see and know how we can be a light in the darkness. How we can bring just a small sliver of your kingdom here to earth this week in Yakima. As a church, I pray you continue to use restoration as a light here in downtown Yakima. As a place where we are a group of believers gathered together, submitted to you might be honored and glorified through us. In Jesus' name.